um, um, Ruth chapter 3, we're going to keep looking at that, that the Lord does whatever he pleases to do. And it's great. <laughs> and it's great that he does whatever he pleases to do. Because what he does is related to him. He doesn't do anything that is not related to him. So we're encouraged and, rem- and, and reminded in the scripture that God is love. So what he does is it's connected to, to that aspect of his character. But not only love, he loves righteousness and justice. So what he does is Im- embedded in, into those um, attributes as well. And holiness, and provision, and providence. And we have seen that nothing happens by accident. And it's a, it is a truth that every Christian should bring, to every Christian, that, 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 that idea should bring great peace, and in the unending joy, pleasant comfort, that nothing happens by accident. And through our series of the book of Ruth, we've seen how God controls every detail and his universe, and this universe of him, and how everything follows his lead. We have gazed upon the reality that God is intentionally invested in the lives of his people, bringing everything forth for his glory and our good. Almost 12 centuries before our King Jesus was born, lived a woman named named Naomi, who with her husband and sons, moved from the city of Bethlehem to the land of Moab due to the great famine, famine that struck the land. In Moab, Elimelech and his two sons died, leaving Naomi destitute with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. But we saw that even in these losses, God was in control, and he used the circumstances to set in motion a chain of events that will result in good not only for Naomi, not only for Ruth, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, including us today. Naomi, accompanied by Ruth, a now believer in the God of Israel, are back in the land. In chapter 2, God's providential care through a series of gains, we see that Ruth went searching for food and came home not only with food, but with a new friend, a godly man by the name of Boaz who invite her to glean alongside his servants throughout the barley and wheat harvest. Today, we come to the third chapter of Ruth, where we see providence in our predicament. To reiterate, nothing just happens in God's universe. Not one thing, and that includes the uniting of two people in marriage. A good marriage is a wonderful thing. As our first scene begins, wedding plans are brewing in the mind of Naomi, Listen to to verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? The original language in the Hebrew, it also can be translated as, My daughter, should I not try to find you rest? A place where you will be taken care of and provided for. And it's in contrast with the mother-in-law jokes that abound in our day. Notice that the beautiful relationship that's developed between Ruth and Naomi. A mutual love is seen in the first scene. I'm not sure if um, this saying is common in, in Australia, to put your money where your mouth is. Is it, is it a known? 
I think it's more, sometimes I, I, I have to, I struggle with the American sayings, and I'm not sure if it's um, English sayings or Australian sayings, so I, I need to be sure. To put your money where your mouth is basically means that to validate what you're saying, you're willing to spend, you're willing to pay. Like, I guarantee that what I'm saying is what it is. So here it is, you know, with inflation, just, just a $10, $10 note, but that should be enough. <laughs> so see how now... Um, how Naomi speaks to Ruth. My daughter, shall I, shall I not seek a state of rest for you that I might be well with you? And Naomi's appreciation for Ruth, she's bringing Ruth's best interest. She knows that she needs a home of her own. And Naomi, with these words, is pleading that she will do what she can to provide one. We see two aspects of this or displays of the type of love that God expects from us. A love that is focused on the needs of others and a love that takes the necessary steps to meet those needs. A love that is focused on the needs of others and a love that takes the necessary steps to meet those needs. There's two aspects of the love that God expects from us to display because it is the same type of love that he has displayed. And this is already very different to how the world portrays love and the action that are derived from it. Love is not absorbing to oneself's interest. It is not meditating and completely disconnected from other people, but it is actively seeking to provide for others. So Naomi is actually actively and personally invested and interest in Ruth's well-being. She's not taking action. She's now taking actions to meet to meet the needs that are present. Verse 2 of Ruth chapter 3, And now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose young women you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. And now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose young women you were? Some scholars like to point out that there has been a period of time. We don't have many... Um, literal explanations of the passing of time through the book of Ruth. The only hints and cues that we have are the times of harvesting. So, um, people that are smarter than me have done this calculation that between the arrival of Ruth and Naomi to the land of Bethlehem and this uh, particular time that we're seeing in chapter 3 have been uh, uh, approximately three months has, has, have passed. So this is calculated by the time of the harvest. It started with the harvest of barley. And you don't um, process the grains as soon as you, got, you get them. You need to let them rest. You storage them before you, you continue the, the processing work. So the harvest of barley has started. And now we're in the, in the times of the harvest of wheat. So here's where Naomi brings an important piece of information forward. Is not Boaz, our kinsman. And it has been already been mentioned in chapter 2, verse 21, that Boaz is their kinsman redeemer. But now we, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 4, we see the wedding plans. Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight, so you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes, and you shall go down to the threshing, um, threshing floor 
but do not take yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Let it be that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And if Naomi's plan sounds strange to us, it is because we don't understand two important laws God gave to Israel to help widows like Naomi and Ruth. The first law concerns liberate marriage. Yahweh gave Israel this law to explain what was to happen if the man of the house died without a son to perpetuate the family name and land inheritance. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The law of liberate marriage was not intended to be a punishment, but a gracious provision for a vulnerable widow and means whereby family love could be demonstrated. So this is, this is Yahweh um, life insurance. He's, he's in advance of, of things happening, providing already a solution for a situation that might happen. And we've seen that this situation, it was pretty common. It happened a lot. And the reason why that happened a lot is because the people of Israel were in, were in constant um, conflict or armed conflict with the tribes or nations around them. So that's in Naomi's mind. So this it's another, um, and there's the another law, the one that pertains to the kinsman redeemer. Um, we read about this law in Leviticus 25, um, chapter 25, verse 25. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. Legally, land could not be sold permanently out of a family in Israel. Since God owned the land, and this is expressed throughout the, the Pentateuch, that God owns the promised land. He is the owner of the land. Not, not the Israelites, not the Jordanians, not the Palestine. God owns it. And we, and we read, he does what he, whatever he pleases. And since he gave it to particular clans and families... As their inheritance, God expected that the land should be returned to those rightful families. In the case where a family temporarily lost control of their land due to excessive debt or famine, or for instance, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to see that the land returned to the proper family. And this would also happen every 50 years in what was um, called the year of Jubilee. There's a mention of that in Leviticus 25, verse 28. So you can tell that Naomi gave some thought to this plan. This is not some improvisation based on the circumstances. This is not the, the best that she came up with. There is well thought, well studied, well, well planned. So Naomi gave this, this thorough plan to Ruth. Wash and perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. In any culture, we know what that means. Dress well. Be noticed well. Notice me. I'm interested in you. And go to the, to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor mentioned here in verse um, 2 in chapter 3 
was the place where farmers will winnow in separating grain from chaff after all the grain had been gathered. Farmers will toss a mixture of straw, grain, and chaff in the air with a pitchfork. The heavier kernels of grain will fall to the ground, while the chaff, the unwanted husk around the kernel, will be blown away. The winnowing of, of, or threshing usually occur at night because night breezes were needed for this separation. It was done at, at evening times, at, at sunset, basically. The location was often a hilltop, which was also better for breezes. It was usually done in a hard surface, such as a rock, so that the grain will not mix with dust and the chaff will, could be easily blown away. These threshing floors were communal places, uh, often shared by members of the village and were places of joy and celebration because the work of threshing meant that the harvest had come in. The second thing is that um, Naomi tells Ruth to approach him after he is asleep, uncover his feet, lie down, and wait. Apparently, those actions meant something in Naomi's culture different from what we uh, would um, take him from today. Um, they, they will mean di something different that they will mean today. And we can be sure that there were no um, immoral connotations. I, I, I read a fair bit of commentary saying that there was kind of like a, like a sexual kind of like nuendo or, 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 or a, a narrative tactic to say um, something that might have been too explicit in a PG-13 type of language. It's not the case. We know that Ruth is not that kind of woman. Chapter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And that Boaz is not that type of man. So we know that there is no um, immoral connotations. There are seven specific instructions then Naomi gives to Ruth in her plan. To take a bath, to, to clean herself. Remember, she's going back and forth to the fields. It's dirty. It's dusty. Um, so it's a good advice. <laughs> if you're going to go and meet up with your, your um, romantic or love interest, um, it would be better to take a bath first. I think it's very sensible. Number two, put on perfume. Smell good. It's a very, very good too. Uh, essential oils were um, often used as, as um, part of the, the beauty um, care of, of the time. So they will, they will put um, oils and men will use oils in their beard. It is mentioned that it was a, a common practice. Women will put oils on, on their hair. Um, so they will carry these this essences. Put on some fresh clothes. Um, remember, Ruth is a, it's a widow. Uh, as a mourning widow, they were dressed in specific ways. I remember when David um, suffered the loss of his um, ch um, children, child, and he dresses in black. And it was a common practice for widows to also be dressed in black so people will know that they are in a period of, of mourning. Uh, number four, visit Boaz at the, tr uh, the threshing floor. After a hard day's work and some good food and a sip of wine, Boaz will be relaxed. And we, we know that, that after a, a, a long day of working, he ate and he drank some wine. And it, said, and it says in the chapter that his heart was merry and he was pleased. I mean, imagine, imagine that they have gone through a, a long period of famine. But now they're experiencing the provision of God. And they, they have produce and they have grain which means that they have food. 
that their kids will grow strong, that they will have something to eat. So this hard work, they're putting everything into it. They're, they're working because like, they're seeing that this is part of God's provision. So when, when the, the, the night comes and they get to eat dinner and have a glass of wine, they, they, they are pleased. They're happy. Number five, observe where Boaz lies down. Make sure it's him. Would have been a very different story if, if, if Ruth goes in the middle of the night and gets the wrong feet. Would have been weird. Number six, uncover Boaz's feet and lie down close to him. And we can sense uh, the tension of, on these instructions. The, the, perf, the purpose of, and this is, it is a sensual um, action. It's a sensual gesture. It is in, intended to communicate something to Boaz. Apparently, this nonverbal gesture was customary means of requesting marriage. Something that Ruth will eventually communicate verbally. And number seven, the, the seventh specific instruction from Naomi to Ruth, listen to Boaz's instruction, Naomi says. He will tell you what to do. Naomi trustingly leaves the matter to Boaz, knowing that the result will be in God's providence. So she's not saying that because you do all these things in this specific way, you're going to marry Boaz. It's all a might be. It could be. But we'll take the risk. And this, if this is, sounds strange to us, think for a moment what would they think about our traditions, or our customs. How would they think um, about um, the custom of, of giving a, an engagement ring that goes into uh, the specific fourth finger of the left hand and throwing rice at the couple of their wedding ceremony? Why, did, why are they throwing food? Don't throw food, they would say. <laughs> So we might not fully understand the cultural meanings of Naomi's plan, but we can, cannot miss the significance. With her plan, Naomi demonstrated her love for Ruth. Naomi's demonstrating her love for Ruth. And Ruth reciprocated. Verses 5 and 6 of our chapter 3. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do so. So Naomi has demonstrated to Ruth that she loves her and that it is in her best interest that she finds rest, protection, and provision. But a couple of things to notice before we keep going. The first one is Ruth is not desperate for a man. It's very important to keep in mind. Ruth is not desperate, desperate for a man. Let us not think of Ruth as a, just a mindless pushover. She is a woman of strength and courage. She left her family with the full realization that she might never see them again. Her family was alive. She left them. She left her family with the full realization that she might never see them again. She was prepared for what they could encounter on their way back to Bethlehem. She pleaded with Naomi and ultimately with the God of Israel... And that is why, and this is the second thing to determine, um, to consider, <clears throat> she is determined to do all she can to see the Lord's will accomplished. So Ruth's obedience is not fueled by selfish motives, but for her personal commitment with the Lord. 
Ruth's obedience is not fueled by selfish motives, but, more, but for her personal commitment with the Lord. See, remember that the law given by God has been constantly mentioned throughout these chapters. So what Ruth has in mind is Naomi and her care, but also her deceased father-in-law and the instruction that the Lord gave to the families to have an heir. Ruth is not being motivated for selfish ambition, but for the sake of the Lord and others. That's what love is about. The glory of the Lord and the needs of others. So as we make plans, we can learn this from Naomi and Ruth. As we try to figure out strategies to make good decisions in our lives, we know that there is one person on whom everything depends, the Lord Jesus. We are called to live in such a way that everything depends on the kindness, integrity, and redeeming power of our Lord. To the extent that we know that we can trust Him and that we can live for Him, even if it means risk. Uh, you're getting the visit of a, of a dear missionary family of yours next week. Ask them if there wasn't any risk in that decision and hear to what they will say. They will probably say, of course there is. But, of, but as we know that there are risks, we also know that we have a God that is faithful, that is kind, and that it has power to work through every circumstance. Remember the lesson from chapter 1. When we hold back and play safe, when we move in earthly wisdom, we display a small view of our Lord. A suspicion deep down that he might not come through for us. That he cannot be trusted to do what is best for us. But when we see him as he is, the, the perfect Boaz, a redeemer and a bridegroom of perfect kindness and integrity, then we can joyfully lean on his character living in a way that only makes sense because he is who he says he is. Now let's consider the proposal. How things go after the plan is set in motion. Ruth entrusted herself to Boaz. Here's how she did it. Notice verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. A commentator, James Patch, offers a depiction of these threshing floors. The threshing floors are constructed in the fields, preferably in a... In a an exposed position in order to get the full benefit of the wind. If there is a danger of marauders, they are clustered together close to the village. The floor is a level circular area of 20 to 40 feet in diameter, prepared by first picking out the stones and, when, and then wetting the ground, tamping it, rolling it, and finally sweeping it. A border of stones usually surrounds the floor that keep in the grain, the sheaves of grain which have been brought on the backs of men, donkeys, camels, or oxen are heaped on this area, and the process of tramping now begins. In some localities, several animals, commonly oxen or donkeys, are tied abreast and driving around and around the floor until the wheat is transferred to bags. Someone sleeps by the pile of the threshing floor. Remember that um, Boaz is a manager of, of a portion of the field, and he is involved in the whole process. He's not just supervising. He's just not the boss. 
Boaz, the boss. He's not just the boss. He's more than that. He's also working. And he's putting the effort. And not only that, but after the, that long day of work, he goes and stays with the workers, with the protest. So with that picture in mind, watch Boaz. He goes to the far end of the grain pile, lies down, and soon drifts off. So he's a bit separated from the rest of the people. Verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7 continues. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for immoral practices to occur at harvest time, since many of the pagan religions of the nations around were, um, will practice fertility rites. But Ruth is not doing anything indiscreet and certainly nothing with immoral connotations. By her actions, she is simply taking steps to put God's revealed will into practice. She is about to let Boaz know that she will be willing to accept him, to accept him as the kinsman redeemer, to make Malon's place and elaborate, to take Malon's place and elaborate marriage. Another commentator says, Ruth could have gone before the elders of the city and demanded that he do it, and she would have been within her legal rights. But the method adopted by her at the suggestion of Naomi was a quiet and reticent manner of proceeding. It was so interpreted by Boaz, as we shall see. Put yourself in Boaz's sandals. How would you react in this situation? You have put in a full day of work. You have eaten well and thank God for his gift and creation. Now you're enjoying some rest amid the grain provided by the Lord. All is well and then you wake up with cold feet. And what is more, you find, our, you find a woman lying next to you. And the amazement is communicated with the word behold. Understandably, in the dark, he asked this, his, this woman, who are you? And I don't know the, the tone of the question. I don't know, I don't know if he, he whispered it or, or, or if he reacts with a sense of shock and surprise. Was he upset? The question itself and the absence of my daughter betrayed that Boaz did not recognize, recognize Ruth at, at first. So Ruth answered briefly, I am Ruth, your servant. And her response is different from the, the way that she describes herself in chapter um, 2, verse 13, where she was amazed at Boaz's favor. Um, let's just read it to, to freshen up our memory. Um, chapter 2, verse um, 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. That, that word servant here is different in chapter 3. She's identifying herself as having an improved status. She's the kind of woman that Boaz might marry. Because now she is not, she is one of, of the servants of the house of Boaz. She's just not the Moabite. She's not ever called again the Moabite in the, in the, in the book. She was the Moabite before, the Moabite that came with Naomi. Now she was a person in her own right. Her reply, I am Ruth, enlarged that contrast. She addressed Boaz as a familiar peer, I, you. 
in a more almost colloquial way, not as a simple servant. By omitting the ethnic label Moabite, she spoke as a full-fledged Bethlehemite finally. So the twice-repeated you made servant also implied an improved status. She was no longer simply a lower-class servant, which is the word used in, in chapter 2, verse 13. Rather, she identified herself among those eligible for marriage. So Ruth does not follow Naomi's plan exactly. Instead of waiting on Boaz's instruction, Ruth takes the initiative. She is essentially proposing to Boaz when she says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Um, verse 9. She communicates her desire to him. She's not intended in some daily one-night stand. This is not what's going on in here. And I had to make that clarification because, trust me, if you go online or you go and read commentaries, you will find a lot of uh, those assumptions. She is not interested in a, in a one-night stand. She is interested in marriage. So the idiom, spread your wings or garment, elsewhere is an idiom for marriage. If you, if you quickly want to go to, in your Bibles to Ezekiel 16... Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Ezekiel 16, verse 8 says, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord Yahweh. So Boaz also used this expression previously to describe how Ruth sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Um, verse 12 in Ruth um, chapter 2. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth now is asking Boaz to become part of God's protection and provision for her life. And you can see how serious Ruth is. When she pleaded her, her, um, her covenant to, to Naomi and the Lord Yahweh, she uses covenantal language. And when she spoke to, to Boaz, she uses biblical language as well. And now all the time you see that she's using language that relates with God, that relates with the Lord. But now Ruth is acting on what she knows. And, and that's it, that God is concerned about the care of widows. And this is now a matter of God's reputation. She has brought the law, but she has done it in love. And that is important to remember. And now the ball is in Boaz's cut. So the response and the reaction or response of Boaz is what we could expect from a godly man. Remember, Boaz is an excellent man. He's a man of excellence. So his response is a response that comes from a man of excellence. May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. The first thing that Boaz does is to bring the Lord into the situation. Boaz recognized that Ruth could have done very differently. She could have gone with someone younger. But Ruth is not motivated by self-love and ambition. She does what is right. 
She is seeking to marry the kinsman, Redeemer, of Elimelech, and the one who can not only protect and provide for her, but also Naomi and the family's name. So Boaz includes six things that he gives to her in his response. Six things that we can see in Boaz's response. The first one is a promise. All that you say, I will do for you. The selfless approach of Boaz only shows how both of them are the perfect couple. He promises to take action that will result in Ruth's care, even if, as we'll see in a moment, he does not have the privilege of giving that care. I will do it. That's a promise. The second thing he does is he gives her a compliment. All my people within the gates of the city know that you are, are a woman of excellence. The same word used in chapter 2 to describe Boaz as a man of excellence. He says that everybody in town knows that Ruth is a woman of noble character. The Hebrew word which is used of the ideal woman in chapter 31 of Proverbs speaks of moral worth and can be translated as virtuous or excellent, an excellent woman for an excellent man. But also, Boaz gives Ruth shocking news. There is a kinsman redeemer closer than I, the drama. How's the drama? There is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. I read from a scholar that the fact that Boaz knows about this closer kinsman redeemer might indicate that he's been already considering Ruth as a possibility for marriage. It could be. I don't know. I'm quoting. But what we know is that the four things that Boaz gives to Ruth is an assurance of her redemption. Stay this night, and it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, this closer redeemer, kinsman redeemer, if he will redeem you, good. That, that must have been difficult for him to say. If he redeems you, fine. And he's not like, a, yeah, whatever. It's fine. It's, it's the Lord's will. It's good. But you can tell that he wants it. Let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Even if, if Boaz doesn't, have, doesn't get the privilege of marrying Ruth, he is going to take steps to make sure someone does. Ruth's care was his number one concern. And again, that's real love. Boaz gives Ruth a reminder. Purity matters. So she laid at his feet, at his feet, not next to him, at his feet, until morning, and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He encouraged her to remain until morning, said it will be dangerous it would be dangerous for her to go in the middle of the night. Their encounter happened around midnight. So it would be dangerous for her to go back and walk home alone in the middle of the night. And on the other hand, he made sure that she left before daybreak so that their meeting on the threshing floor will remain their secret. If that information became public, it might mar Ruth's reputation and his own. There is actually a provision in the Mishnah, this, this compilation of the, of the oral traditions, um, of, of the Israelites 
that if a man was suspected of having intercourse with a Gentile woman, he could not perform liberate marriage. Now, it is refreshing to see at this period of time, remember there's a period of time of the judges, where everything goes. It's refreshing to see a man and a woman committed to purity. And I want to speak candidly here. Sex is a good a gift from our Creator to mankind. Sex is enjoyable by God's design. A good gift to be enjoyed within the marriage relationship. Rick Ress says, It is like a fire. Fire is good when it stays in the fireplace, but it becomes destructive when a burning log rolls out of the fireplace onto the family room carpet. Our society mocks purity, but in so doing, it cheapens sex. Sex becomes hollow when experienced before or outside marriage. That's why true loves wait until marriage. And once married, true love flees from every form of sexual immorality and chooses to use this gift as a way to save one's spouse. Number six, Boaz gave Ruth provision. Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and, the, and he measured six measures of barley and placed it on her. And then she went into the city. Boaz is constantly providing for Ruth. Again, that's what love does. It looks for needs and then takes action to meet those needs. So what we learn, priorities. Over and over again, we see this rather simple approach from Ruth when dealing with her circumstances. She puts always the Lord first. So the question is, are our priorities in order? Are we doing everything for the glory of God? Is this the fuel in our hearts that is pushing our lives? The sake of the Lord. Another thing that we learn from this cha short chapter in the book of Ruth is that we learn God's purpose for marriage. Marriage is about serving. So the question for us who are married, are we serving one another? And for those who are not married yet, the question is, how are you making sure that when the time comes, you will be a servant to your spouse? Can we see in our marriages the, quality of, the qualities of Boaz as a selfless provider? Can we see the qualities in us men as Boaz, a selfless provider? He's not coming and saying to Ruth, but look everything that I do for you. Look at all the food that I'm giving you. Look at all the things that I'm, I'm doing for you. Look at all the plans and all the connections. So give me some. He doesn't say that. Selfless provider. He does what he needs to do because it's what God commands him to do. And he does it joyfully and faithfully. And can we see, and you wives, Ruth's godly influence on those who God has called you to serve, whether it's your husband or your kids. Can you see a godly influence on those who God has called you to serve? 
When I was working on my script for the sermon, I, I started writing about the qualities of the Proverbs 31 women. Then I realized that the Proverbs 31 women doesn't work with the Proverbs 31 men. But it's something that you're going to get through the week if I finish it. <laughs> I'll, I'll upload it into the blog and I'll send it to you. Because it was, it was getting too long. <laughs> but the third thing that we, we learn is that we are all in need of redemption. And God takes redemption seriously. So you should too. God set up the law of the kinsman redeemer. He did, not, he did so not only to provide for families in Israel that lost their land, but also to illustrate our greatest need. We all have lost something. In Adam, we lost paradise. We enter this world cut off from God. We need a redeemer. We need to be redeemed. And God provides for us by sending his son, Jesus, into the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Redeemed by the blood of Christ. The unblemished and spotless lamb. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. In whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of, his, of sins, speaking about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There are dozens of Bible verses that will lead us to see that redemption it's an important aspect of God's salvific plan. It is important for Him. It should be important for us. Our debt is big. Impossible for us to pay. We simply just don't have enough. We simply just don't have enough. In Adam, we have lost the inheritance of paradise. But even more, we have lost perfect relationship and communion with the Lord Yahweh. But Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, and the Lord has provided. He himself has set his heart to come for the rescue of those who will be his. He himself, himself has set his heart to pay 
and from the riches of his mercy, we have seen now that he has come forth for us, for his glory, for our good. The Lord has accepted the payment made by the blood of Jesus. A blood so precious, so available, available, that can atone for the sins of his people. All of the sins of all of his people. And not only that, but also pay for the blessings, for the access to the presence, the very presence of God. We not only get our Eden back. No, my dear, so much more we have been given the Lord himself. And this is the call of the gospel. This is the call of the gospel message. Repent and believe. Come to the Redeemer. Come to Jesus. And Him, there is forgiveness of sin and redemption to our souls. What once was tarnished and dull now shines forth for the glory and the excellency of His name. Through Him, We can be called a man of excellence, a woman of excellence, because of the excellency of his name. The streets of heaven will be filled with former captives who, through no merit of their own, find themselves redeemed, forgiven, and free. Slaves to sin have become saints. No wonder we will be singing a new song. A song of praise to the Redeemer who, ha- who was slain. We were slaves to sin, condemned to eternal separation from God. But Jesus paid the price to redeem us, resulting in our freedom from slavery to sin and our rescue from the eternal consequences of that sin. How does it look to you to trust in Jesus as Ruth trusted Boaz? Have you trusted? Has the Lord extended his wings over you? I pray that you have. I pray that you are. And if not, today is the best day to do it. Today we remind the blood the body of Christ given out for our sins, for our transgressions, to pay the debt that we have nothing to pay for. Nothing we have, nothing we bring. In Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. It's only the merits of Christ that we can say that we are under the wings of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, dear Father, we come to you because you have come to us first. We love you because you have loved us first. We call you Father because through Christ you have been adopted us. You have adopted us into your family. We come to you, not through our sin, not through our transgressions. We come to you 
through our Lord, precious Jesus. We present ourselves to you in his behalf, under his merits, clothed, clothed with his clothes of righteousness, justice, and perfect obedience. We belong to you. You pay the price. You purchase us with the blood of your son, with the blood of the unblemished, spotless lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the blood of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. In his name we pray. In his name we glorify you. In his name we stand. Amen. Have a blessed week.